Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. India's current election cycle offers an opportunity to think about India's past and future. With me is Rajmohan Gandhi, a research professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, and he is the author of Modern South India. It's about South India from the 17th century until today. He is the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. Also with me is Gauri Ramnarayan. She's a playwright, theater director, and a journalist with The Hindu. And she's going to be in conversation with Rajmohan Gandhi uh, tomorrow at the Fine Arts Building at 1 o'clock. Thank you both for joining us. It's great to be with you. Now, I don't think a lot of listeners know a lot about the history of South India. And it sounds like a pretty audacious undertaking to write a history of South India for 400 years. Um, there's lots of language groups, cultures, and civilizations that were there. Why did you want to do this? How did you tackle this project? Well, why I wanted to do it? Because nobody else had done it. Uh, many or some wonderful scholars have written about ancient South India, the temples and the cultures of ancient South India. But my attempt to uh, understand South India from the 17th century to our times was a new attempt. Because uh, as has been mentioned by you, South India has so many languages, so many cultures. And for whatever reason, nobody had tried to write a unified or integrated story of South India. So I attempted to do it. Now, do people write their own histories of their own cultures? Is that the the predominant tendency? Yes, people do uh, focus on their own cultures. So broadly speaking, there are four large cultures and many other smaller cultures. There is the Tamil culture, the Telugu culture, the Kannada culture, the Malayalam culture. Then there's the Tulu and the Konkani and some others. But let's say if we take these four, Telugu, Malayalam, Tamil, Kannada, each of these has scores of millions of people. It's a very large number today. But each culture is so rich, each literature is so rich, that uh, scholars have naturally tended to study their own cultures very deeply. And, but until I made this uh, bold attempt... Nobody has tried to write the story of South India as a whole. What is the interplay of the cultures like? Can you give us an idea? Because it sounds like that is the most interesting thing, is to kind of write something that shows the interplay of the different uh, cultures and the interplay of the Hindu-Muslim narrative over that time. Sure. So, uh, you know, four centuries is a long period. So even the interplay that you refer to uh, undergoes change over time. And uh, for some time, to begin with, the interplay was the different European powers trying to control South India. There was Portugal, there was Holland, there was England, there was France. Then there was a clash between the English and the French. And then the freedom movement appeared. And these different cultures all had their very important separate place in the freedom movement, but they also often had a unified place in the freedom movement. And then there was a great clash between the so-called higher castes, the so-called Brahmin caste, which is supposed to be the highest, and all the lower castes, and then uh, further below them, the so-called untouchables. So uh, there was a great question. Is the freedom of India politically more important, or should we have freedom for the oppressed, the suppressed people? So should the fight against orthodoxy and prejudice take precedence, or should fight for India's independence? So those were some major clashes in the 19th and 20th centuries. But more recently, the cultural separateness of these different parts of the South have come into the fore. And in 1956, 
for the first time. Administrative divisions were created in South India to correspond to each of these separate cultures. So the Tamil state, the Telugu state, the Kannada state, the Malayalam state called Kerala, these are all relatively modern creations. So the interplay of these cultures has come to the fore more in the last 60, 70 years uh, than earlier. The curious thing is, earlier, people in the South, many of them were bilingual, trilingual, very happy to speak more than one South Indian language. But because of these linguistic states, as they are called, separate states for each language group, and these were natural administrative areas because uh, one area had Tamil speakers, one area had Telugu speakers, one area had Kannada speakers, one area had Malayalam speakers. So it was a wonderful thing to have an administrative state, which is also uh, a state where the people could speak to the government in the local language. But what recent decades have also seen is an unfortunate, not just rivalry, but sometimes ill will, dislike. So politics... Uh, is often based uh, today in southern India on how horrible your neighbor has been, your South Indian neighbor. It's reducing pluralism and yes. increasing nationalism. Yes, or local regionalism or, or whatever. Yes. And the, the rise of regional parties is, right, is right. a reflection of what's going on there. Very much so. And you achieve your political aims not just by promoting your culture or language, but by saying how horrible your neighbor is. So the anti-feeling is a very useful political tool. So this too is part of of the story. There is one area where this kind of rivalry or hatred doesn't exist, where people embrace the other warmly and respectfully. This is the world of classical South Indian music, ah. where the <laughs> classical musicians of India, even today, sing songs from Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam and Tamil. This is what we should focus on, where people come together and pluralism exists in a very strong way. There is no need for slogans and for protests. It is so naturally harmonious. So I look at the arts and I take hope from that. I think we will overcome these rivalries. I wanted to give listeners a flavor of how history is so contentious right now. And South, yes. South India's history is very contentious. Uh, Tipu Sultan is a dominant figure in the narrative of South India. And in my book. And in your book. So explain a little who he is and why there is controversy about him these days. So Tipu Sultan was a very powerful ruler of an area that used to be called Mysore. This was the Mysore dynasty. They were the, a kingdom. Yes, there was a Mysore kingdom for a long time. And then it was his father who was first the head of the army there, and then he took over the kingdom and uh, strengthened it and, and extended it. And then his son came along and continued a remarkable rule there. Both Haider and Tipu are controversial figures, but they're also remarkable figures. In a famous battle in 1799, Tipu was killed. Of course, his father died a natural death some years earlier. He was he, killed by the British. By the British. And one of the men who led the attack to kill him was the man who afterwards uh, dealt with Napoleon in Europe. Uh, he was good. <laughs> from the British that, angle, very yes. good. <laughs> but what I want your uh, listeners to recognize is that when Tipu was killed in England, there was tremendous celebration. And for a long time thereafter, people in Britain, in England and Scotland, uh, regarded Tipu and Napoleon as the two great foes of the British Empire. Wow. 
So Tipu was spoken of in the same breath as Napoleon. And in fact, there was a possibility of an alliance between Napoleon and Tipu, which was frustrated by the British. So I, I mention this because Tipu has to be seen as the last great defier of British rule in India. He was killed in 1799, and when he was killed, that was the end of Indian defiance of British rule. Uh, Yes, there are many controversies about him. He was a Muslim. Uh, His father was a Muslim, but they had been in India for several generations. They were Indians, but they belonged to the Muslim religion. His chief minister uh, was a Hindu Brahmin called Purnaya, a very interesting man who has to be studied for his own life and remarkable achievements. And many in his administration were Brahmins who ran the kingdom of Mysore, both for Haida and then for Tipu. It is also true that when he, uh, uh, he and his father, when they punished rebels, they were punished very harshly. And many of the rebels were Hindu rebels, and they were punished very harshly. So it is possible to think of Tipu as somebody who was a very harsh Muslim ruler who was harsh towards Hindus. That is one way of looking at the story. Another way of looking at the story is to see that Tipu was a ruler, uh, an Indian ruler, who had made Mysore a very large power, and he had defied the British very remarkably. And that it was his defeat that led to the consolidation of British power in South India, and you might say in India as a whole. So one can look at him in two different ways. And from the book I learned that not only Muslims, but Hindus in large numbers, they were inconsolable after his death. And that was one of the reasons that they fell into a state of apathy. Am I right? Yes, he had a great number of uh, Hindu uh, followers and admirers, of course. He also had, had many critics, both Muslim critics and Hindu critics. He was like any political figure. I'm talking with Rajmohan Gandhi, and we're discussing some of the people in his book, Modern South India. It's about South India from the 17th century until today. Also with me is Gauri Ramnarayan, and she's a playwright, theater director, and journalist. So the controversy today is that the the BJP and the Hindu nationalists, they want to depict him as someone who was bad to Hindus. Yes. And the people who were freedom fighters for India celebrate him as a resistance guy to the British. Exactly. And and it sounds like both are kind of true. Uh, Yes. uh, Yes. There's no doubt that Tipu was also a ruthless ruler. You might say even a tyrannical ruler. He was very harsh to rebels, and many of his rebels were Hindus. So it is perfectly possible to see Tipu as some kind of person who made life difficult for many Hindus. But that's only part of the story. But he wasn't running an exclusively Muslim... Not at all, not at all. As I mentioned, that most of his administrators were Hindus, this Brahmin minister of his Purnaya, and many others. Uh, So the Brahmin administrators were very influential during Tipu's time. They were influential during his father Haider's time. They were influential when the British came. They were influential after independence came. So then there was a very large anti-Brahmin movement also in South India. So the freedom from the British was one movement, but then there was this great movement to, you might say, find justice or representation for the non-Brahmins who were the great majority. So the Hindu right has always had this agenda to regard the Muslim as the chief foe, the chief enemy, the chief threat to India. 
So therefore, they would look at history that way. They would like to, uh, you might say, twist history to justify their argument that the real threat to India was, is, and always will be the fact that there are so many Muslims in India. They're now 14% of the Indian population. But my purpose in writing this book was not to say that one view of Tipu is correct or another view of Tipu is correct. And Tipu, by the way, is only one part of my large story. My attempt is to discover what South India was like in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, 20th century, and to let the reader make up her or his mind. So is religious polarization a product of the 20th century, or is it something that was happening in earlier centuries? There always was some tension. So the Hindu-Muslim story, which starts actually in the 7th century, 8th century in India, because Muslims came into India. Uh, they came into South India in the 8th and the 9th century, not as invaders, but as traders, not as proselytizers or invaders, but as traders and settled in South India in the 8th and 9th century. They came to Northern India later in the 11th and 12th century. They came to Sindh in Western India, also in the 6th, 7th century. So the Hindu-Muslim interaction uh, ever since that time has shown both cordiality, trust, but also a lot of tension, a lot of conflict. There was also conflict between Hindu and Hindu rulers. There was a lot of conflict between Muslim and Muslim rulers. But it's perfectly possible selectively to say, well, Indian history is a story of Hindu-Muslim rivalry. And of course, if you want to summarize a, a story and make it interesting and controversial for an international audience, you must find a clash and you must find those who are engaged in the clash. But that is a completely insufficient, inadequate, and I would say misleading way of understanding history. What would you say is going on in India right now with the BJP? I understand they got some scholars together and they're thinking about what the history of India is from their point of view. And they're essentially trying to rewrite the history their way. I mean, they would probably disagree with some of the things you said about, uh, I mean, they go right back to the roots. They want you to think about the roots of India as Hindu and, you know, that they were always there and there was nobody else. And uh, is that about what's going on? That's part of the story. And you're quite right that there is this attempt to produce a new history or a history that is favorable to their way of looking at things. And so it results now under the Modi government last five years an attack on uh, schools and colleges and universities and the way they are being run and uh, creation of new textbooks and the elimination of various figures uh, from history uh, or presenting them in a particular way. So this is part of the assault that is taking place, I'm afraid, on freedom of expression, on pluralism, on uh, academic integrity, on the independence of universities on the independence of institutions. So my history writing is one part, but I must also express here that I'm profoundly concerned at these tendencies that are taking place in India. I'm talking with Rajmohan Gandhi. He's a research professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he is the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. We're discussing his book, Modern South India, about South India from the 17th century until today. Also with me, Gauri Ramnarayan. She is a playwright, theater director, and journalist with The Hindu. We are going to be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about India's past and future today with Rajmohan Gandhi. He's a research professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois. His new book is Modern South India. It's about South India from the 17th century until today. Also with me is Gauri Ramnarayan, and she's a playwright, theater director, and journalist with The Hindu. They're going to be in conversation tomorrow at the Fine Arts Building at 1 o'clock. And I wanted to talk more directly about Gandhiism and what is happening with India today. Before the break, we were talking a bit about pluralism and what is going on with pluralism. And, you know, it seems like the country has changed and that the pluralistic, secularistic thing that is implanted, I think, in most listeners' minds about India is changing with the BJP, and they want it to change, and they want to change history. You know, is Gandhiism dwindling away? So Gandhi had certain very fundamental notions, uh, and which were shared by a great majority of the Indian people and by those who created the Indian constitution at the time of India's independence. Prime Minister Nehru was one of Gandhi's very close colleagues and followers who became India's prime minister for 17 years. So there are many similarities between the U.S. and India. Both have diverse populations. Uh, the U.S. in many ways a new country, although it had also had people living for centuries before the Europeans came. But it was, in some ways, the U.S. was called the New World. And the idea was that the people of all backgrounds create a nation based on an idea, not based on a religion or based on birth. Gandhi felt that although India was an old country, was also a country of diverse populations and also was a country based not on birth or on belief, but on the idea that everybody could live together and everybody could have equal rights. And that was a bold concept, a radical concept. It was also a concept that was part of India's freedom movement. Uh, so India's freedom movement and India's pluralism, the fact that India was a nation for all. Yes, the Hindus were a majority but the Muslim and the Christian and the atheist, the Buddhist, the Jew, the Parsi, they were tiny numbers, some of these groups. But each of them had an equal claim to India. So that notion, call it pluralism, call it equality, is under great assault. And, of course, this is a global trend today. And the, you, you in the U.S. are not uh, an exception. You to bet. This. So the idea of let's take a country back as if the country belongs only to a particular kind of people, that India belongs to the Hindus. Uh, the U.S. belongs to the white man. Uh, we must take a country back. So that notion is a direct assault on Gandhi's idea of India's life and independence. Even in Gandhi's time, though, was there uh, strong resistance to this philosophy? Was there communalism? Was there uh, Which pushback? is why he was, was killed. There, yes. <laughs> uh, which is why he was killed. And, of course... And when India was partitioned, now, just as today, some Hindus in India want to say that India belongs to the Hindus, there were some who said that there should be a part of India called Pakistan, which should belong to the Muslims. And that the Hindus and the Sikhs and the Christians there uh, should not be citizens of the same class as the Muslims. Gandhi was totally opposed to the idea that Pakistan should be a nation where the Muslims should have priority and dominance, and India should be a nation where the Hindus should have dominance. So when India was, became independent and the subcontinent was partitioned and Pakistan was created, there was very great violence and tragedy. 
And part of that tragedy was, of course, the assassination of Gandhi by right-wing Hindu extremists who felt that he was friendlier than necessary to the Muslims. But the remarkable thing was that Gandhi's efforts in the final phase of his life, plus the fact that he was assassinated by a Hindu extremist, made Gandhi's ideas stronger than ever in India for some time. But now, 60, 70 years after his assassination in recent years, as part of a global trend that I spoke of earlier, you know, the notion that much of the world must unite against a so-called Islamic threat is a well-known notion in many parts of the world. But some decades ago, the world learned that to blame an entire group because of their birth was terrible. And now the world is also learning that you can't blame a whole section of humanity because of the beliefs they subscribe to. So uh, the battle that India is having to fight today is similar to the battle that many nations are having to fight today. Where do you think it is on the ground in India? When I was there a few years ago, I expected to see statues to Gandhi and things of that nature. But I didn't expect to see people on the bus reading Gandhi. And I did see people reading Gandhi. And, you know, nobody here sits down. I don't see anybody on the bus reading Martin Luther King or anything. <laughs> Uh, there was more there than I thought when I went and looked for myself. Is that a, a logical reaction? Well, you know, the place of Gandhi in India's life and culture and thought is not so easy to establish. He's there. Of course, he's on the currency. He's on every money bill in India. He's on, on billboards. Uh, he's on postage stamps. The present prime minister of India, Mr. Narendra Modi, B BJP prime minister, often speaks about Gandhi. Uh, because Gandhi is a name to reckon with in India. He's a loved name. He's an honored name. He's a name of great prestige. But I have to say, in all frankness, that many of the policies of Mr. Modi and his government are absolutely anti-Gandhi because they are tolerating at times, encouraging at other times, the attitude of, of blaming the Muslims for what's happening, for anything that may be wrong in India today. So although Gandhi has a very firm place in the Indian mind and in the Indian imagination, the ultimate aim of the extreme Hindu right is to eliminate the influence of Gandhi from India. And those who sympathize with these extremist views, they like an edited version of Gandhi. For instance, I find that the prayer, the famous prayer associated with Mahatma Gandhi, has a line saying, Ishwar Allah Tero Naam. The God's name is both Ishwar, that's the Hindu God, and Allah. Now they want to excise that verse <laughs> from the song. So I, I think that there is an attempt to edit Gandhi according to your need because you can't dispense with him as they are attempting to do with Jawaharlal Nehru. I'm talking with Gauri Ramnarayan, and she's a playwright, theater director, and journalist with The Hindu, and Rajmohan Gandhi. He is the author of Modern South India, about South India from the 17th century until today. He is the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. It's the 150th anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's birth in October of this year. And Gauri, I wanted to ask you about your musical tribute to Mahatma Gandhi. Why did you do this, and what songs are in there in, in the musical tribute? I was asked to do this, it was not my idea, by groups of Indians here in several cities in the United States. In fact, we performed in Chicago. It was called Music for Peace. And I put together the songs that were sung about Mahatma Gandhi and obviously the freedom struggle uh, during the 1930s and 40s by classical musicians of South India, uh, mostly in Tamil, the language uh, Tamil. 
also in several other south indian languages and a gujarati bhajan that was the mahatma's favorite what i found out in researching my material collecting these songs was that the musicians in the 1930s and 40s seemed to have been really political activists uh, which is difficult to believe when you look at their portraits looking like absolutely hidebound you know die hard uh, brahmans but they seem to have risked imprisonment for sedition by the british government in singing these songs openly in concerts and in political rallies uh, the content of the songs varies uh, there is one song about the charkha the spinning wheel as gandhi's great weapon just as rama the great god conquered the world with his arrow gandhi is going to conquer the world with the spinning wheel that is one song and many other songs uh, which talk about follow the path of the mahatma and you will not go wrong Now are these songs people basically have to rediscover now is that what what's Absolutely. going on or, or are there songs that are still kind of out there and people know uh, one or two people do know but most of the songs i think they have forgotten uh, because um, it belonged to a certain period when people felt energized and enthused by the ideologies of mahatma gandhi I don't know if the world of Carnatic music is now so activist or politically inclined, except barring a few exceptions. Rajmohan, did you did you know any of these songs? That, uh, yeah, of course, I did indeed. <laughs> And uh, it's not widely known how closely allied Gandhi's movement was with music. Music was a very important part of the India's freedom movement and also India's movement to create a pluralist society of equal rights for all. So the notion that Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Christians and Jews, Buddhists and atheists all belong to India was spread not only through writing and texts but through songs and music. And of course most of us grew up with those songs and these are many of them are still popular and known to Uh, many people but the newer generation maybe has not been given access to those songs and the uh, the present dispensation and and the many people who are committed to that kind of ideology uh would like now to create a new music altogether and as gauri says to excise certain words and certain sentences from some of those very popular songs do you think that the 150th anniversary of gandhi's birth is going to cause some more reflection on this in India and and here in the United States. I believe so and it is already taking place. You know, in, in, these these reflections started almost a year ago and the great culmination will be on October 2 of this year, which will be 150 years of Gandhi's birth. But side by side, there is also a deliberate attempt to destroy this important part of the Gandhi legacy. That India is a nation that belongs to all. So there is a good ideological fight on in India as in many other parts of the world. Uh, so one thing, Jerome, that I, I feel I should add is that Gandhi cannot be understood properly without recognizing his incredible links with the African Americans of of the United States, and people know, of course, about Martin Luther King Jr. and the incredible uh, partnership that developed between Gandhi and King after Gandhi's death, but before. Uh, uh Gandhi's death and before Martin Luther King appeared on the scene there was Howard Thurman there was um 
Channing Tobias, there was Benjamin Mays, there was Hubert Harrison, there was Marcus Garvey, uh, there was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Gandhi had incredible associations with, the, with these people. And one cannot understand Gandhi's story or India's story without also taking into account the partnership between the Indian movement for justice and the African-American movement for justice. <coughs> and, and considering that this is the 150th year of Gandhi's birth and the 90th year of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birth, uh, we have to understand this relationship all the more. Rajmohan Gandhi is a research professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's the author of Modern South India, about South India from the 17th century until today. He is the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, and um, he will be in conversation with Gauri Ramnarayan, and she is a playwright, theater director, and journalist at The Hindu, and they will be talking tomorrow at the um, Fine Arts Building at 1 p.m. And you can get more information at the Calapria website at calapria.org. And you can check him out yourself and make a reservation there. Thanks a lot both for joining us and fascinating conversation about the past and future of India. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, Worldview met with a group of Chicago-based lawyers, social workers, and psychologists who work with survivors of sexual violence. They watched scenes from a film called The Prosecutors about the people who seek justice for rape victim for victims of rape in conflict areas. All this week, we'll bring you excerpts of those conversations, and here's a scene for the introduction of the movie with some notable testimony at the United Nations. In 2008, the United Nations passed Resolution 1820, requiring member countries to address war crimes of sexual violence. It is time for all of us to assume our responsibility to go beyond condemning this behavior to taking concrete steps to end it, to make it socially unacceptable, to recognize it is not cultural, it is criminal. Today, courts around the world are working to implement new mandates for prosecution in their home countries, increasing opportunities for survivors to achieve justice. There is, again, such a power in having that local jurisdiction, that state, that that condemnation come not from some imperial power imposed from above, right, but from the very people who are in the community who then have um, the opportunity to affect cultural transformation. Because at the end of the day, right, whether you're talking about retribution, whether you're talking about deterrence, that's, I think, what everyone has in mind as the end game. Because right now it's, it's criminal and cultural, right. right? And so until that changes, until right. we can say it's right. not cultural, it's yeah. criminal, full stop. Right we're going to keep seeing what we're seeing. Right. The military is predicated on, on violence and depersonalization, mm -hmm. right? To be able to, to fight, to kill someone, to take someone's life, is, is to start to say this isn't a human being. Um, and, and so there are, there are so many ways that violence is sort of baked into cultural norms mm -hmm. um, that to only... Um, focus on that cultural 
accountability would be effectively to hold everyone accountable, every institution accountable. And I do think if we don't begin by identifying um, victims of violence and perpetrators of that violence and having some system of accountability, um, we'll never move the needle on, on social attitudes. But to your point, it does feel like we stop at this sort of legal accountability as if that's the end of the story when in fact um, not only for perpetrators but also for victims is not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. This is a really important point I think in the restorative justice conversation. The United States has no federal law criminalizing crimes against humanity as it is defined in international law and by the International Criminal Court. There is a U.S. law related to genocide. We do uh, have an extensive code of uh, regulations as they pertain to the conduct of the military and war crimes. Um, But crimes against humanity, um, which would include systematic sexual violence and war crime and rape as a weapon of war, um, is literally not addressed, utterly omitted from the U.S. Code. The American Bar Association has a working group on crimes against humanity that was specifically formed to address this omission and to work with members of Congress to advocate for its legislation. So if listeners are interested, I would encourage them to read up on the issue and reach out to the ABA. Those were the voices of Northwestern law professors uh, Deborah Turkheimer and Juliet Sorensen, as well as writer Anne Rehm, reacting to scenes from the film The Prosecutors. There's a screening of the film next Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Worldview Steve Bynum will moderate a conversation with director Leslie Thomas. That's Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we'll talk about a favorite project, the International Voices Project. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here with recommendations on how you should spend your time. Nari, how are you? Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. We've got a couple of mentions first. Um, where are we going first? Yeah, we're planet? going around the world. It's a, it's a tour de force of around the world. But uh, there is really an interesting uh, exhibition starting tonight at the Uri Eichen Gallery, which has a lot of really interesting exhibitions, uh, 2101 South Halstead. And this is about art. It's an anniversary of Roe versus Wade, uh, the issue, uh, Supreme Court uh, case that deals with the abortion and rights of women to have an abortion. Art inspired by that decision and installations, photographs and all of that. There's a reception for it tonight at 7 p.m. over there. It's a worthwhile thing to check out. 
the Uri Eichen Gallery there on 2101 South Halstead, always an interesting spot. Yeah, and also there is a, uh, something called Fresh Anke, which is, uh, which is an event that's done by, by a literary organization that focuses on the youth and they're writing uh, 8 to 6 Chicago. Uh, and they are actually doing something with uh, called uh, Resistance Through Self-Representation with Hoda Kotebi, who uh, describes herself as an angry daughter of Muslim Iranian-American immigrants. And uh, she has also started this uh, fashion uh, magazine, online fashion magazine, called Juju Azad, which in Persian kind of translates as like chicky chicky freedom <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> so uh, she is doing that, and she's going to be talking about some of her writing uh, through this, and it should be an interesting event also. And uh, 826 uh, Shy is the also associated with the Wicker Park Secret Agent Supply Company, which people might want to stop in at and get some, <laughs> get some secret agent supplies. I've done that in the past. It's super fun. Exactly, exactly. Now, um, we're finally going on to uh, uh, one of the events that we really like and have done talked about before in the program. Exactly. This is one of the most uh, interesting events that goes on, happens all, uh, all around the year and helps globalize the Chicago theater scene. International Voices Project, which is about readings of plays that have been translated uh, from all over the world and brought to Chicago for readings. And it's an interesting event and it's happening for the, until, until early June, I, I understand. So, and there's a really good one coming up with an Italian uh, writer this week. Patricia Sarah is here. She's executive director of the International Voices Project. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. Tell people what it is for people who've never heard of the International Voices Project. The International Voices Project exists to bring global playwrights to Chicago stages. And we do that through trans, uh, uh, commissioning translations of plays from other languages and other cultures and through uh, encouraging production of these plays. And you've done this for 10 years now. 10 years. 10 seasons. Yes. And uh, the, the cool thing is it's free. That's right. You can come for free and That's see right. a staging of a international play. That's right. At the Instituto Cervantes, a nice place to go. It's a beautiful place to go. Great access by the red line. Uh, just a lovely, elegant space. Now, tell us about that. Um, the play Nari was mentioning. This is your next one up. You're on Tuesdays and Thursdays That's right. uh, for the next few weeks is how it runs. That's right. Tuesday in particular is exciting for us because it's with a new partner. It's a partner out yeah. of New York called the Italian and American Playwrights Project, uh, started by Valeria Orani, who is connected to uh, World Pen. Her project is part of World Pen out of uh, Cooney in New York who does a, a very similar festival that also started around the same time we did 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm doing, and you're doing a very interesting play called A Note for Winter. Uh, and it's a two-person play and uh, a college, a university literature professor uh, who ends up uh, getting held up at knife point by a robber and the evening becomes very interesting conversation between him and the robber. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of these playwrights are starting to play with form, playing with the absurd, but I think also dealing with increased levels of violence or perceived violence in their cultures. Anxiety. Anxiety. So, And this is a two-person play. That's right. And so it's got like that two-person tension thing going. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what happens if there's a lot of people in the play? Is that, is that okay? You know, it's how we one. just talking about <laughs> South that. South Korean one, 18 <laughs> actors. Oh, my gosh. 
on on the you Cervantes stage. So it's <laughs> it's still in process. Let's just say that. That's she the one we wrap up with. She still hasn't cast all of them yet. <laughs> <laughs> we have she a wonderful needs- director, David Ree. David's doing great work on it. His company is Token Theater, and it's the first time they're collaborating with us. But we're still casting. Wow, you must really like the South Korean uh, play. It must I be love good. It. What is it? Um, I had the opportunity, I should say, to meet this playwright at Cornell mm-hmm. because our company is starting to branch out and to share our own translations and bring them in more. But we've never had the chance to do a South Korean piece, wow. uh, particularly one that was in translation and produced, so we have certain criteria. Um, it's a lot of small scenes and a lot of different interactions, but it really speaks about cultural anxieties. We're kind of back to that idea about anxiety. Wow. Only it has 18 people yeah, who are 18. anxious rather than two. Oh, no, My hat's off to <laughs> you. That's a lot you're, of music you're, stands. You're willing to take on challenges that a lot of other people are not. So, uh, yeah. And uh, tell us, like, after 10 years, you know, what are some of the most interesting t- uh, challenges that you have had to face? I have to tell you, when we were scheduled to do this, I went back and listened to some of my early interviews on the show. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I could hear myself to hear what mm-hmm. I was thinking about and what the challenges were at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was more logistical or making more national connections. Now that we have more of a national presence, our priorities have shifted and the culture has started to shift. We are seeing more international work um, in Chicago. So we've really thought about what can we bring to the landscape as it is. So mm-hmm. we keep trying to reach out farther and farther into cultures we haven't represented before, like South Korea. Yeah. Um, and if we don't have pieces to take that proactive step to get translations, to commission new work, that's really been probably the biggest growth of the company. Do you wow. have new partners this year? We other do. We've got the, a number of the one them. You just mentioned. Yeah. Um, certainly the Italians are coming in for the first time. Token, as I mentioned. Um, um, our Romanian playwright is coming in. Her name is Saviana uh, uh, Stanescu. And uh-huh. she brings in her own sort of partnerships that we, uh, colleagues from around the country that we share partnerships with. Mm-hmm. I think our newest partners are really translators. Hmm. And I think that's another interesting branch for us that we've really made our connections through translators and translation associations. So they're starting to come in and partner. Wow. Wow. That's really something that's very counterintuitive to people to try to uh, deal with translators and uh, have them be the connective tissue yeah. <laughs> for all for everything. It's just uh, uh, it's very easy to dismiss and yeah. ignore translators. But a good way to think of it is when you travel. Yeah. If you're in a place where you don't know the language, the first person you're going to go to find yeah. is somebody to translate. Even if it's someone who's just translating, how do I get my meal mm-hmm. to somebody formal? Mm-hmm. They're going to be your bridge to. That culture. I see. How does your idea get received uh, by the Chicago theater community here? And uh, uh, are people easy, uh, receptive to the idea and picking up on some of these things that you present to them? Uh, it tends to be younger companies who are looking for a way to shape their identity okay. or to establish themselves. And it's a great way to do it uh-huh. for a new voice in a theater company to find a new voice in a playwright. And to make that connection. So we tend to make those connections even more. Okay. But we also try to connect with larger institutions. Like I had a great conversation with Chris Henderson at Chicago Shakes. Okay. And we talked about the role we play versus what they do. Because what they do is amazing. The work that they bring in, those larger, glorious productions. Right. So we kind of share this 
kinship in what we do, but we do it at our different levels for mm-hmm. our different intentions. I see. And, and if you could uh, have a wish list of where you would like to make connections to in the future. Oh, I'll tell you, be? and it's really basic. It's not terribly <laughs> exciting. Yeah. I would love to change the undergraduate BA for theater students. A minor a minor thing, right? <laughs> but I would love to see there, um, particularly for directors, oh. actors, producers, those who think they'll produce, mm-hmm. to start to read more global work mm-hmm. as though it's mainstream, Mm-hmm. To not back off, to not be afraid of it, and to then imagine it into the companies that they're going to create. So right. you want into the syllabus? I went into the syllabus. I went into the program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no small feat, I know. There would, uh, why? why uh, I imagine you could get that going if you really wanted to. It's uh, it's a challenge, you know the the canon, the Western canon, and even those who venture into an Eastern canon is kind of established. Yeah. Um, the Contemporary playwrights play with different forms. You have to learn how to direct that form. So there are definitely challenges. We're talking with Patricia Azera. She's executive director of the International Voices Project, and it's ongoing until June 4th. Uh, The next show is Tuesday, May 14th, and it goes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's free at Instituto Cervantes. You just got to sign up for your ticket. Uh, One of the cool things you do is you talk to people after the play uh, about the play. The funny thing is, afterwards, our people don't want to leave. We have to flash the lights because they're so interested in having the conversation about what they saw tonight and how it's different, how the Norwegian piece that they saw last week is different than the Italian piece and different than the Korean piece. We tend to get a lot of people who are not just traditional theater people. But people who really want to explore culture, who want to explore language. And process their anxiety. And process their anxiety. But then also meet the actors and meet the artists and go, that's a really interesting text. What do you think of it? So it's, it's a different kind of conversation. Uh, that, uh, one, one of the reasons I feel, I, I think I psychologically find it appealing to go to a reading is because I kind of feel in the back of my mind that the Work is not quite finished yet, right. and I could have an impact on the creative exactly. process. Yeah, and that's what I, I didn't realize that about myself. Then later on, like, wow, that's why I like to go to these things. And uh, even though it's not a finished product yet, but it's really appealing to me uh, to yeah. be to to witness that. And it's least. really an opportunity for that theater company or that director right. to hear that kind of feedback and go, I didn't think about that. I, maybe this is working. Maybe this isn't working. As they consider a full production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have a chance to have an impact, actually. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. Uh, wow. Anyways. <laughs> who are some of the people yeah. you're talking to after the I – mean, you talk with some people who are the playwrights, right? I mean, you talk – you were bringing in the Romanian playwright. You're going to talk to that person. Absolutely. We'll do yeah. talk back with them before. We've also started doing pre-show discussions. So last night for the Egyptian piece, yeah. one of our, our regular attendees, who's a scholar mm-hmm. himself, gave us a 15-minute introduction to the play and the playwright, which we had never done before. We thought we'd try it, and it just – Opened up the evening in a whole new way. Amazing. And there's Thursday night, there's a play called Sunk, I think. Spun. Spun. I, Spun, uh, yes. Spun. What, what is that one about? Pakistani, uh, exactly. British playwright. Right. And another, th- another part of this anxiety are these playwrights who have a strong cultural identity who are then uh, in another culture for whatever reason. Their families move them there. They move there because of something going on in their own country. And it's how they are... Uh, managing dual identities and how that works in some cultures and doesn't and how some really embrace that first culture or don't. They try to bury it. 
So that's an interesting sort of theme that we see running through a lot of our plays lately. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that sounds yeah. really good. Yeah. And um, so if people want to go, how do they go about this again? Where, how do they get involved with the International Plays IVPChicago.org. IVPChicago.org. Three letters, IVP. <laughs> and you go and you sign up and you go for free and you get all this culture any Tuesday or Thursday night you want. Tuesday or Thursday night. It's all in the schedule. You put in uh, put in a reservation. Um, there's a lovely reception with food and drinks and People who for are really free. eager to connect afterwards Boy, for free. That is fun. Yeah, free. and Cervantes is a fantastic venue to just hang out. Just get there by six thirty p.m. <laughs> and uh, and have fun and uh, get uh, you know get immersed in the world of global theater. And Cervantes itself is really becoming this sort of nexus of culture. The programming is. there is really bringing in a remarkable cross section of people from all over the place in different uh, art forms. What's your vision for the next ten years of the International? Ooh, good question. Um, I would like to see us bringing in more international artists. So bringing in artists who bring their work uh, full hog, full production. I'd like to see... Oh, full hog, full production. That's oh, right. Yeah. I, and people who might not normally make it here. So then it's not a grand production, but it's a couple of nights of a really interesting production, kind of in the model of the MCA. I think does remarkable uh. work. I'd like to see us begin producing our pieces because I have about 12 pieces. I would love to direct myself or bring in directors for and to start a modeling practice where we support any theater company who wants to produce plays that come out of the series. Well, congratulations on 10 years of the International Voices Project. Patricia Zera is the executive director of the International Voices Project. Right on. Thank you. Nari Safavi, thanks for another fine weekend passport. We'll see you again next Friday with international suggestions for folks. It was a privilege to be here. Monday on Worldview, we'll talk uh, with two experts on conflict-related sexual violence about how the Trump administration is watering down rape as a war crime. We'll talk more about the movie The Prosecutors, which we've been featuring uh, this week on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. And thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.